Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Just Two Dads, another episode, another issue, another edition. I don't know what we're calling it anymore. With my partner in Thrive, Mr. Sean Francis, I am Brian Altunian. Today's guest is uh, has been an advocate in our special needs community for several years, although she looks like she's 22. Um, you're going to have a, a, enjoy a great conversation today with Dr. Doreen Grandpisha. Grand Pichet. I almost I almost got it right the first you time. Got it great. Thank you. All right, so hang on for another episode of Just Two Dads. Hi everybody. This is Brian Altunian. Welcome to another episode. I think this is episode number 105 uh, for Just Two Dads. Sean Francis and I. Uh, decided to do this a couple of years ago and talk to folks who are doing amazing things in the special needs community. Um, as as just two dads, we have children on, uh, with various uh, various differences. Um, we decided to get together and have this conversation uh, because we found so many amazing warriors, people who are doing great things for for our community. We want to create an opportunity for to show a spotlight on those folks. And, um, and then create a network where everybody could get together and find resources. So first of all, I wanna thank everybody who's catching us live on, on Facebook. Um, welcome, please leave a comment. We'll try to add it to the screen. If you're catching us after the fact on our, on our YouTube channel, Just Two Dads, please subscribe and share the information with your friends. And then uh, finally, for those listening on podcast outlets everywhere, hello, welcome. We don't get a chance to, to see you or interact live, but please comment. Send us a note at wearejusttwodads at gmail.com. And then for all of those listening on the U.S. Virgin Islands at WSTXAM Radio, hello, family. Looking forward to seeing you all one of these days. This will be an exciting uh, conversation today. Um, I'm going to be back and forth muting on and off, I think, today. But uh, <laughs> that's okay. It's going to be a great conversation. Sean, you, look, you are lit up today. I, I think literally and figuratively, you look lit up today. How, how, how are you feeling? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. There's a lot of moving parts uh, to the day, some of which I'll, I think I might share in a, in a, in a future episode because um, we are uh, practitioners of personal development here. And I like to make sure that I add value wherever I go, or at least try to. And there's been some in um, value to add in some of the challenges today, but that is for another time and place. Um, you know, I'm just really grateful for the platform, the opportunity that we have. Um, and for today's guest, especially um, those that are, you know, joining us and that watch or listen on a regular basis don't know this, but we generally will have a conversation with our guest or prospective guest beforehand to make sure that we're all on the same page and there's a fit and everything. And I had one of the more difficult times not asking a bunch of questions and doing the interview on the spot or having the conversation in our initial, um, because we like to make sure that things are as organic as they can be here today and I'm bursting at the seams with the questions that I that I have for our guest today and um how do we my gosh <laughs> there we we're all warriors in some way shape or form right we like to think so well wait wait, wait. you have to tell, tell 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 about who Dr. Doreen is oh, so that I, people know I, who she I, I have is every intention of doing okay, that good, okay good okay good yeah yeah um you know but this person in particular has been at it or like we say in the game so to speak for quite some time um she's the founder of card we'll tell you like you know exactly uh, what that organization is the therapy that they provide and i just can't wait to find out you know where she comes from both 
physically and and mentally because you have to come from a particular place in order to wage the kind of war that she has on um, special needs and autism in particular and putting um, those who have been diagnosed in a position to live as full a life as possible. And the person I'm speaking of is none other than Dr. Doreen Green Peche. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Just Two Dads. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here and I'm really looking forward to chatting with you guys. Well, we appreciate it. Hopefully that sounded like an introduction that gave you some justice as opposed to somebody, you know, looking for the words because that's what I was doing, but I couldn't find it because there's so many directions I wanted to go in. Um, You're too kind. It was a wonderful introduction. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, we begin the show uh, or our our conversation with um, the beginning of you, so to speak. You know, you probably consider yourself to just be someone that does what they think is right. You're just who you are. Um, You might not think you're a hero, but in our eyes, you are. And all heroes have superpowers and those powers come from uh, one's origin. So tell us about yourself, uh, you know, where you were born, your upbringing and everything, because that obviously has an impact on how you respond to the challenges that either you face or that you help others to face or overcome. Okay, I will. Thank you. Um, So I was born in Iran, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was about four years old, I went to England, where I went to boarding school, actually, in England for a few years. And then after that, I Uh, from England, I went to Switzerland for a year. This was kind of the thing that people would do in Iran in in the 60s is they would send their kids abroad to learn languages. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and that's, you know, I went to England and learned English and then went to Switzerland and, and learned some French and then went back to Iran for three years. And then I came to the States. And when I came to the States, it was right before the Iranian Revolution, which mm. happened in 1979. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the reason that everybody was leaving Iran or whoever could. Um, and then I uh, grew up in L.A. from that time forward. I, I came to the States. I went to uh, high school here one year. Um, mm-hmm. I was supposed to go 11th and 12th, but the, the education system was a little easier here. So I ended up going just one year and graduated. And then I was pretty young, and but I ended up going to UCLA. And then I was at UCLA for 12 years. I <laughs> got all my degrees there <laughs> and learned all about autism and behavioral interventions. Mm-hmm. And then I uh, left UCLA in 1990 and started CARD. Wow. So I try to just imagine, you know, because there's a a, a variety of directions and studies that one would pursue and industries and things of that sort. How did you, especially at that point in time, get led to anything related to autism? Because I remember for myself, the first time I ever heard of the word autism, Sylvester Stallone was on the cover, uh, cover of People magazine with his son, Sage, and his picture of him in his arms. And um, I think he had the, the trunk, trunks on from Rocky. And it it just talked about the diagnosis. And because Steve didn't even, I didn't even, Steve didn't even register until years later. At the time, I thought autism, uh, it just, I, I thought it couldn't have been that bad because he's engaged, smiling, looking at, um, at, the, at the photographer or, or at the camera. And this was me. I don't even think this was like early 80s. This might have been like Rocky 
72 or something like that. First movie came out in 76. You're talking like late 70s. Other than that, I don't know when was the next time that I heard of the of the word. So mm-hmm. how did you even get there towards autism at all? It's funny that you should mention Sylvester Stallone because he was one of the first patients that we saw at UCLA. So his son. Wow. It would have been it would have been very early 80s, probably like 80s. You know what? Mm-hmm. That is so incredible because you answered a question that I had even yet to ask. So Brian's daughter was diagnosed with a condition called microcephaly and apraxia. And Brian's daughter is 26, mm-hmm. 26 years of age. Yeah. And so I've always said, and I said the same thing to Holly Robinson Pete when she was on with us. Anyone, the further back you go in years mm-hmm. to a person's diagnosis, regardless of what the, the diagnosis may be, the more of a warrior that parent has to be because there's less resources available. And the question that I wasn't going to ask to which you are the answer is, my gosh, even though he had money, I'm sure, what resources were available to Sylvester Stallone for Sage back then? And the answer is you. Yeah. And honestly, I have to tell you, Sean, back then we did not know very much. Like in the 70s, you realize we were just coming off uh, the Bettelheim era, right? So in the 60s and early 70s, there was a, a scientist uh, by the name of Bettelheim, and his theory was that autism had been was because of cold parenting, specifically the refrigerator mother. We just and, heard about that on a recent episode from a previous guest, and Brian and neither one of us had ever heard it before. Okay. And it was a, it was like the prevalent thing going on all through, I would say the sixties and seventies. And uh, one, a parent by the name of Dr. Dr. Bernie Rimland, Bernard Rimland, he was, uh, he had a child and he believed this to be nonsense. Right. And so he started to look at kind of the biochemistry and, uh, came out in, I think it was 63 or 64, wrote a book that said it has nothing to do with parenting. And oh we all need to search and find what it actually does have to do with. And he later formed a group of physicians uh, who were very interested in finding out more about the biochemistry behind autism. But, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, We still, I mean, when I started in this field, I did part of my pre-doctoral internship at uh, Camarillo State Hospital. So we still had institutions, right? And they had two autism wards there where, uh, and these were for very, very severe, severely affected children. So one of, you know, my introduction to autism wasn't what we experience today. When I- First, the first children that I met with autism were so severely affected that like one little girl had bitten off her own fingers. Uh, another boy would hit his head against the wall so hard that he literally had broken his skull multiple times. So this was a very, very severe form. And people didn't understand back then so much, so many things. There was no understanding of the sensory dysregulation that goes on. Mm-hmm. There was no understanding of the concept that all of these kind of uh, self-injurious or aggressive challenging behaviors are just mm-hmm. communication. 
Like nobody understood that, oh, the child's trying to communicate something. Either they right. have pain or they want something or they're frustrated. That's all it is. They can't talk, so they're communicating. So a lot of that stuff, we just didn't know. So back then, a lot of the treatments were just like experimental. And, you know, there was a lot going on at UCLA in the neuropsych section of UCLA, uh, a different section, but they were really trying a lot of different biomedical types of interventions and so on. And when I got involved with the autism project at UCLA, which is where Dr. Ivar Lovas, who was my mentor, was, mm -hmm. when nice. we were trying to teach a lot of what we did was we would look at IQ tests. We were psych students, right? So we mm -hmm. were learning how to do IQ testing. And so we would look at these tests and we would learn uh, what are the things that we're measuring? What are we looking for when you look at someone who's intelligent or what, what does intelligence mean? And then we would take those particular areas and kind of turn them into lessons and then attempt to teach those things with very basic concept of operant conditioning, which is I'm going to break it down. I'm going to teach it, model it, teach it to the individual. If they do well, I'm going to reward them. I mean, mm -hmm. it is the basis of all animal and human learning is right. All living learning. Right. Right. Let me, let me ask you this at that time. Was it simply referred to as autism was the spectrum disorder not even thought of at that point in time i'm assuming it was everyone is just lumped in you're not even looking yeah. at a spectrum yeah yeah somewhere on my bookshelf there's a dsm-3 which would go all the way diagnostic manual all the way back there yeah it was just mm -hmm. autism and it had if i remember now correctly because that was the first diagnostic manual i trained on and if i remember correctly it had 16 different symptoms that had to be met but it was just autism and there wasn't right. until DSM-4, the Diagnostic Manual version 4, that came out in the 90s, I would say. And mm -hmm. that one was kind of interesting because now we had four different diagnoses. I'm, now you're testing my memory here. So we had <laughs> autism and we had Asperger's. Right. And we had disintegrative disorder, which was kind of the type of autism that would get worse over time. And then mm -hmm. we had PDDNOS, which was pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. In other words, if you didn't fit any of those other three, we're going to give you a diagnosis of PDDNOS. And I always used to lecture about this, Sean, and I'd say to people, what does it tell you that we these are the diagnosis keeps changing every time the diagnostic manual changes? It tells you we don't know much. No. Right, right. Thank you. I, I was gonna say I was I, I was actually a psych major at UCLA in the same at the same time. I was there from eighty one to eighty five and so around the same time. And in fact, I think I took a class with Dr. Lovas. Yeah. Um, but I it, I don't even remember us discussing autism at the time. I think it was like still early, early stages of yeah of it. So really um, amazing how it's progressed. I, I didn't think that we would be on uh, talk about spectrum disorder because obviously that's come over time as you see the yeah. various you know, the, the extent of, of, of impact. Yeah. And I, you know, Brian, I don't know. I felt I had different feelings towards it when it became, when they redefined it as a spectrum, I think we've always known that it's, a, you know, there's, 
I don't, I don't know. I don't want to say I'm not even sure that the, it's the same disorder. Like I don't I just don't know if the folks that are very, very high functioning and have social issues should be classified together with folks who are nonverbal and self-injurious and so on. And I, there's, mm. a, there's a detriment to that, which is until, until you can subdivide and be more specific the treatment is not going to be appropriate. Like it's good. You can't have the same treatment for this person and this person. It, it has right. to be a different thing. So we it's, still have ways to go. I think. It's so funny that, that you say that, you know, we all like to try and be, um, you know, evolving, you know, we, 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 we want to be on a constant basis. And throughout the show, we've gone from saying, you know, you know what? There's no such thing as special needs. Everyone needs to be seen, needs to be heard. Everyone has the same needs. You might just need a different mechanism or a different amount of it, just like you love your child, your children all the same. But you just made a great point, which is, yeah, we, we all need the same thing. But yes, there is something special about how someone gets what they need, whether it's affirm affirmation therapy or whatever the case may be, because you just mentioned something that I've never thought of before because my son is on the spectrum and I just think of the picture. You think of what you know, but you just clearly pointed out how different things are depending on where on the spectrum one falls and exactly how treatment um, uh, and, and, and therapy is given. So that's something that continues to evolve and always will. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, if you think about us as people, right, if we all have, let's say the same type of injury, we're still going to have different types of interventions or treatments that help us. And I think, you know, now that I've spent 30 somewhat years doing ABA, uh, applied behavior analysis and, and a lot of other treatments, I think the success of that has to do with this fact, the personal making the treatment appropriate to the child. It's mm -hmm. so important because you're going to have, I ha, I've treated kids who are extremely strong visually and everything you teach them has to be presented on a visual spec. You know, they have to be able to see it. There yeah. are kids who have unbelievable verbal memory and everything you teach has to do that. There are kids who are so distractible that you really need to like focus them before you can teach them anything. There are children who learn better if every five minutes you allow them to do some sort of sensory. They're all mm -hmm. different. The kids are different. And unless you really spend the time to learn how this child learns, then mm -hmm. you're not successful because you're just throwing at information at them and it's not getting through it's the equivalent of a of, of a love language and if i'm smiling and i seem eager and i keep getting closer and closer to the edge of my seat it's because throughout this entire conversation it's like you're throwing a very slow ball across the plate for me to hit because every time every time i'm thinking of something you're setting up the perfect question so i want to get back to how you got to finding card but since you brought up aba and you just also talked about individual uh, experiences and needs and everything, you know, ABA has, is either embraced or vilified. And I've seen people make statements like, you know, where they, they're not saying we had a bad experience, but it is bad for the patient. This is bad for so-and-so. Our experience has been, you know, with, um, you know, our son and, you know, ABA has been, you know, a, a, a good one. We haven't had any issues per se, but then as people that I know, love and trust who have said, oh my gosh, it's just it was just, you know, horrible. Mm -hmm. The experience that you have 
with it. For those that are that are listening that may not know what it is, uh, you know, applied behavior, explain a little bit about what ABA is and where the division may come in terms of one's experience or opinion of it. Of course. So, you know, ABA is applied behavior analysis. In the old days, it used to be called behavior modification. It's just the form of, of teaching. And what it has to do with is, you know, you model a behavior and the beha- then the child or individual performs the behavior and then you as the therapist reward that. And as you do this, the individual will learn a lot of new behaviors. It's very, co- it's like school, but it's much right. Or it's much more kind of focused on the individual. So, you know, you go to school, you do your homework, your teacher gives you a good grade. That's the concept, right? It's like every behavior that is rewarded increases and every behavior that is not rewarded decreases. And that right. holds true for all of life, all of us, everything we do. But in, in and there is good ABA and there is bad ABA. And that's the key to it, I think, because Good ABA takes the whole individual into consideration and then applies these techniques to that individual and helps them. Bad ABA is very cookbook and you have to kind of come and fit into my program and that's that. And, and you know, when I say takes the whole individual into consideration for me, and one of the things I tried very hard to instill in all the folks at CARD when I was running it was the concept of first identify that this is a whole person who needs to feel good. So before Mm -hmm. they give them a ton of hours of teaching, right? So is the child healthy? Like, are they feeling good? Like so many parents over the course of the years I treated kids would tell me that their child has severe constipation, severe diarrhea, so many GI issues, inflammation, et cetera. And nobody was dealing with it. And so now to take that child and put him in intensive tutoring, which is ABA, just didn't make sense to me. It's not fair. It's not right. So Mm -hmm. take every child, make sure they're healthy, make sure their brain is awake, right? And they're eating foods that are nutritious and they're able to get good sleep. Like so Mm -hmm. much depends on the child sleeping and feeling better. Do all of Make sure all of that is happening. Work with the family unit so that you're all on the same goals, same page. You establish goals that are manageable because the child has to enjoy this. And you make sure that you're taking into consideration the child's age, not teaching them things that are way above their age, and only really focus on things that are useful to life, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't spend a lot of time teaching my kids geography, but I do spend time teaching them how to talk so there's that kind of thing and and bad aba and there are organizations i will say and or just behavior analysts who are young in the field they come into their people at the end of the day it's just it's just given by people it's just like a doctor you know you have a, a a human being and then you i'm sure it's it's fair to say that good aba i i would imagine has been our experience has been like as a parent you know the you're being told by the therapist, look, your job is to be here because while we're working with the child, we're coaching you because they live with you. So that should be, you should be an extension of the therapy that's being received. That is a really important point you bring up, Sean, because, you know, the original research that we did and published at UCLA, the LOVA study, it's known as in 87 was the first study that came out and said, Hey, kids can actually 
live normal lives, and this is kind of a very touchy word, recovery, but can live mm-hmm. normal lives if you teach them all the, the, the right things intensively over a short period of time. And that became, that is why, because even back then we used to say the child should be learning all waking hours because typically developing kids learn all waking hours, right? Mm-hmm. And so the whole concept of training parents is because, you know, you have therapists either in your home or at the clinic where they're receiving, where your child's receiving the services, it's definitely not all waking hours. So if we can train parents and teachers and everyone who interacts with the child to use the same techniques of ABA, then the child is learning all waking hours. And that's the whole goal of it. Yeah. And for those that are, that are listening that are not members of the special needs community, you just happen to be, you know, watching us for the first time, you know, that's something else to take into consideration. I'm just saying this because it might allow you to give more empathy to someone who's raising a child with special needs is that, you know, because most of us don't want to get into the woe is me, you know, or, or seek any pity or anything like that. It is a lot to have different people coming into your home, oh, right? Yeah. Or even when you have to drive to the therapy, depending on how often those things take place, they wear you out and they're taxing. You know, um, and, and you're, you're kind of taking you're kind of taking me back to that because we haven't had a lot of those things, especially where the point where my son receives services, you know, all in school. But it's, it's, a, it's a lot. It's a lot. And sometimes as parents, I think we also feel bad about it. We feel like, hey, is he like in getting some sort of education all the time? When is this poor good kid going to have some free time? I, I totally understand all of that. And I think that, you know, again, good ABA also is teaching the child during recreational activities and does mm-hmm. build in a lot of really free and good time. Now, there's a whole nother group of people, as I'm sure you guys also know, who feel that just as a whole, the concept of wanting to change autism is not yeah. acceptable. The whole thing about cure and, and everything. And before yeah. we move on, I just want to let people know, anyone that is listening that is n- new to a diagnosis of autism um, and is, has been told or the idea of ABA has been presented to them, before you before you decide whether it's good or bad, take into consideration everything that you've just heard, rewind, and listen to what constitutes good ABA or bad ABA in terms of an experience. Because my personal opinion, you know, and I'm not the one with the you know with the PhD, but it's as good as the therapist and the manner in which it's presented. But it's also depend it also depends upon how you receive it from the coaching standpoint. Yes, that's absolutely right. We, Go ahead, Brian. We, we received a comment on, on, on Facebook, if I can just throw it up here uh, for a second. Mm-hmm. Do that. Yeah. So, so yeah. Dr. Doreen, <clears throat> some people, autistic adults say that ABA traumatized them and they now have PTSD, will not recommend ABA. So that things taken away from them that had calmed them during ABA. Yeah. I mean, I think the answer to that is there's, I think, two answers, quite honestly. One is, uh, yes, I would say that the, the whole field of ABA is still developing and it is entirely possible that they received therapy from someone, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago 
who took something away that was calming because you have to realize 10, 15 years ago, sensory was not even a part of autism. It wasn't even a diagnostic. It was not, it didn't exist. Like the concept that a child with autism needs something to downregulate from a sensory perspective or that mm-hmm. they have sensory uh, sensitivities wasn't part of the diagnosis at all. And so, and the whole, right. So the whole field of sensory integration and all of this sort of stuff didn't exist 15, 20 mm-hmm. years yeah. ago. So it is possible that if a child was, let's say, playing with an object that gave them a sense of calm or peace, a, a behaviorist would think, oh, it, the child's being distracted. And I'm going to take this away so that they can attend. And so, yes, it is possible that that the individual would have experienced, oh, this is even harder for me to calm down now. Those things are absolutely, I mean, you have to really realize that now when I say good ABA, the key to it is always making the experience positive for your clients, whatever it is. Your client is having a really hard time because you took something away from them. You should react to that. You should understand that they probably need some sort of sensory thing to calm them down. I mean, it's really interesting is that years ago, I actually used to talk about both biomedical issues like sleep and and um, intestinal inflammation and so on and Mm -hmm. sensory issues. And I used to tell people in my speeches that these are both very important things to pay attention to. And I was booed in my own field. There were times when at national conferences, they would put up my picture and say, whoa, this, you know, no scientist should ever say biomedical or sensory is a part of autism. So this kind of stuff is... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm blown away by several things, and I want to thank you for one. And my wife is a research expert, so she might might not be surprised. But our son, Elijah, is 16. So what you informed me of is that the sensory issues and everything that he was experiencing was brand new when he was diagnosed. And then I know that I have the benefit of my experience but it still just blows me away because I think as a lay person, just as a parent, if you see this upsets my child, this calms them down. This is something they should probably have since it calms them down as opposed to taking this away. It does seem like there's a, you turn on the lights, the lights bother my child. The sound, that bothers my child to the right. point that it's not quote unquote normal. It's not like most people. That's Therefore, right. I wonder... Hmm. There must be a sensory issue. The fact that one couldn't arrive at two once adding one and one just seems difficult for me to process. And, and again, yeah, I have the benefit of, you know, that's all I know, but it, it just, so I think it's just what happens when people don't want to learn, but go ahead. You said it really well there that Sean, that's exactly, that's very good point. And I see that uh, the question that just popped up, Brian, talking about, you know, hand mm-hmm. flap. The question saying, oh, they had hand flapping when they got excited and they were told they couldn't do that anymore and was rewarded for not doing it. So I'm really glad that the person wrote back in because I I don't want to say that, you know, I want to be clear on my point of view, which is there's we we can we modify the environment 
but we also need to be changed. Like there's a, there's a, uh, yes. we have to meet in the middle. And we need a happy medium. Yes. Yes. There has to be a happy medium. And the reason for that is because we want to survive in this world. That's just as simple as, as it is. Now, 20 years ago, you didn't have sensory sensitive theaters. You didn't have gluten-free menus. You didn't have, you know, people understanding that sometimes a child with autism needs noise canceling headphones, whatever it was. We didn't have, or prism glasses. We didn't have any of that, right? right? And now we do, and those accommodations in society are very important so that our folks who are on the spectrum can actually survive the stimulus input, right? But at the same time, if I am hand flapping continuously, I'm not learning. That's just as simple as it is. And for instance, if I, I mean, I'll compare it to just neurotypical individuals, right? If I decided that it's very calming for me to whatever, meditate, listen to music, read, whatever it is, that's awesome. But there are times, my goal is also to interact with society. So I can right. do things part of the time because I need to keep myself regulated, but I also need to challenge myself and put down those things and actually interact. So it That's is a, a great point. There's a That's a great point. That's a great point because I've heard, first of all, you know, I catch myself and I like to think I'm have a certain amount of consciousness, but I would catch myself correcting my son in, with certain things that he might do. He doesn't flat, but he'll, you know, this echolalia and, you know, things of that sort. And that was very taken by um, someone we know that had said, you know, rather than changing my child to fit into the world, you know, or our children, we should be changing the world to fit our children. Right. And when I hear, hear that, that appeals to me as well. But what yes. you said seems to make the most the most sense because, for instance, again, if a child is rocking back and forth, flapping, there's echolalia, flickering of the eyes, or whatever the case might be, if they need a couple minutes to do that to regulate, that's one thing. If it's taking place at a time where they're supposed to be, maybe they're doing homework, or as you mentioned in your profession, just say meditation, something that's quote unquote normal. You can't necessarily meditate during a court hearing or something like that if you are an attorney, whatever the case might be. Right. And and it's and it's so funny because I haven't even thought of that. I think that just my observation and absorption of that is another example of why we need to make sure that just as human beings, this isn't special needs, this is about the human experience, where we need to continue to evolve and know that we just can't ever arrive at a conclusion and be parked, so to speak. We have to continue to moving to be moving forward. And we uh Leslie Gill Gillen, who's been putting these questions in the in, in the chat, she's got what seems to be more of a comment here. And she says, This is why I'm on the fence with ABA for our five-year-old autistic grandson, whom we have custody of since he was three months old. My heart goes out to you, uh Leslie. I know what that's uh, what that's like in terms of um taking in a child. My wife and I adopted my sister-in-law's um uh, four kids. He's starting to get more aggressive and OCD and his doctors are pushing us for, for ABA for him. I'm so scared to put him in ABA if it's going to traumatize him. I'm really glad I'm learning lots of information on this topic. Thank you so much. That is why we're here. That's Dr. Durr, if you can answer her, uh, Leslie's not, um, comment directly, she's, she's on the fence about ABA. She's mentioned that there's issues with aggression. It's being pushed. What would you say 
is the best way for her to decide whether or not the ABA is the best approach? I think, Leslie, the best thing you can do is actually go, you know, find an organization near you who can provide you the services and then go and observe. A lot. I always used to tell parents, why don't you come and look at a couple of sessions of children who are about the same age as yours? And I think that's really important. If you can go see how they work, what do they do? Talk to some of the other parents at the organization, find out what mm -hmm. they are experiencing. And then when you start, oh, kind of make sure that you're listening to your own instincts as well. Nobody knows your child as well as you do. No one does or your grandchild. And so I think, you know, you never want to work with a provider who is bossing you around, not listening, not not considering the things that are important to you. Uh, not answering your questions a way that makes sense to you. So those are the things that you want to look for. And, you know, even if you start and you feel like things are not working out, you can always change. And and the key to it is that your child should be happy and they should be learning. That's that really brings comfort. That brings comfort because that's exactly the approach that we took. Our son never had an ABA session without one of us present. Um, right. Always, always. So, um yeah, that's yeah, that's a professional opinion. My personal one, Leslie, you know, is um, echoed exactly. And remember, you know, as Dr. Doreen said, once it starts, don't get to feeling like I need to see this through. You're going to yeah. follow your instincts and do and do what's right um, all along. And you want somebody that's going to meet you halfway. Uh, so if you can, at this point, tell us about CARD, how it came to be, because you're going to school, you're studying, you've got your degrees. And and did you from there, did you? start working at someone else's practice? Did you then start your own? Did you go right into starting card? What, what precipitated that? Yeah, so I am, I was, I guess, 27. I had gotten my doctoral degree at UCLA and I was studying to get my license. Um, and I, uh, honestly, I had spent you know, most of my graduate studies working within the world of autism. And this is pretty early on, right? I mean, this is like 1990, early 1990, where there wasn't a whole bunch else going on outside of behavioral interventions. And so the I had done, if you guys remember, like in the early 90s, the other things that were going on in the world were like AIDS was, you know, so we did a lot of work in that area, psychologists and, and eating disorders and all those types of things. And I came back to autism uh, because it was tremendously rewarding for me because, you know, with little children, you work and that you just, you know, a child who's nonverbal starts talking to you, it blows your mind, right? There's like nothing mm -hmm. else you it's the most enjoyable thing and for me it was also the parents I was very very uh and I still am I for me like the most important thing is being able to just change someone's life for the better and it's such a wonderful experience so I came back I started card right out of school straight out of school I, I got a very small clinic in uh Encino California which is about like 20 minutes outside of UCLA and um, I, it was 780 square feet. I had like three rooms and, uh, yeah, I started seeing patients. I would initially, I would just drive from home to home and I got to the point where I was like, I can't do this. It's too much driving. They and had it was to, just you at that point. It was just me. And I was hiring, uh, people who I thought would be good therapists and I would train them. 
So I was working around the clock because that's what I did at UCLA. I mean, I had ran the whole clinic. So right. I would hire people, train them, put them on cases, uh, you know, supervise all the cases myself, obviously. So do all the reports, do the billing, pay the people, all of it, right? Wow. And so it was, it was lots of fun. <laughs> and and they're, not te- they're not teaching you that because you didn't, you didn't go to business no. school, so they're not teaching you that part. No. So is it, is, it, is it fair to say that you learned a portion of that as you did it? I, all of it. I learned all okay. of it. I did it. For, any, it. for every everybody that's listening, I want to make sure that this is caught and not taught. Make sure you catch that. So if you've got a dream, if you've got a goal that you're pursuing, especially if it is tied to the service or betterment of other people, do not ignore it, number one. Number two, you do not have to know any and everything, especially when you hear of where card is today. So continue with that, please. I'm so inspired. I mean, I'll tell you that I was, the whole journey was a blessing, right? The whole journey. One of the, the one blessing was that I met early on and hired very early on individuals who were just as passionate as I was, and they stayed with me and are still at card. So that's like, we're talking 30 years, right? So that was part of the incredible journey. The other thing was parents would often help. One of my earliest parents was an attorney called Bonnie Yates. And she actually came and said, listen, I think you need some parent contracts. And I was like, okay, Mm. why don't you help me? And she wrote my first set of, um, you know, informed consent agreements. I was straight out of school, didn't have any of that. So, and this is way before there was health insurance, right? So it was all private funding. And Mm -hmm. so you learn things along the way, you make mistakes, but you also grow. And it's a matter of paying attention and learning so that you just keep improving things, right? It wasn't until maybe 10 years in that I actually realized I should have someone running HR because now I have like 50 therapists, you know? Mm -hmm. So right. learn. And it was a lot of it, honestly, was just I I was meant to be going down this path. There was a parent Mm -hmm. that I had met in New York when I was at UCLA, and she had written a book called Let Me Hear Your Voice, which if if people haven't read that, I highly recommend it. It was one of the first books written by a parent. Uh, Her Mm -hmm. name, her pen name was Catherine Maurice. Fantastic book. And she mentioned me in it because I had treated her children. And then from there, it was like all these families in New York were contacting me and I started flying out to New York. And before I knew it, I had a therapist who was willing to move to New York. And so my second, I opened a clinic in New York and I was just running it kind of the same way. And same thing, I started treating a child in San Jose, Northern California, and Mm -hmm. this before the internet, right? So this was the very early stages, which we have prodigy. I don't know if you guys. That's right, right. Yeah, that, that's part of that's part of Brian's story when talking about his daughter's <laughs> yeah. diagnosis. And I have to tell you, is where I appreciate you both when you talk about this was before the internet. And I'm sure yeah. again, I mentioned Holly Robinson earlier. Yeah. Same situation. That's scary to think of a world of autism without the internet. Well, it was crazy. And this uh, this prodigy on prodigy, a group of parents had, and it's always the parents. I love that. 
They got sure. together and they would have this group called the Me Group, which was a whole bunch of them, and they would chat. We had the equivalent of chat rooms. They were called something else. But anyway, and then on there, this dad wrote, you know, uh, he asked me and he said, would you open a clinic in San Jose? And I said, I would, but I need 25 kids to make it feasible financially. So he got 25 kids and wow. I opened the clinic there. And he wrote on this chat thing, if you have 25 children in your area, card will open a site. And I'll tell you guys, I that was it. That was all the marketing I did. Because after that, it was a group of parents in South Carolina, a group in England, a group in Australia, a group in New Zealand. And I just started sending people and opening clinics. And that's how CARD initially grew. And, and today this point, you have 219 yeah. centers around. Well, when I, I, I um, sold 75% of the company back in 2018, so four mm -hmm. years ago. And at that time, we had 265 centers with 6,000 behavior technicians and BCBAs. And we were treating, I would say, about 8,000 patients at that time. And then, of course, COVID hit. And I wasn't running the company during COVID because I retired as CEO in the beginning of 2020. Unbelievable time. This is what I'm saying. The universe was for me. Yeah. And, and then basically, they have now had to downsize. And I think they're at 219 or so centers. But they're still all over the place. And you know, for me, I am trying to help in a lot of other ways, right? So my focus now is just my show, my, as you know, I have a um, show called Ask Dr. Doreen, which is Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Parents uh, write in and call in just like your chat. They are constantly in contact and I answer all their questions every Tuesday. And I also do answer questions on Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok. I have an Ask Dr. Doreen on TikTok where I do shows about all these different topics of autism. And, and you know, we've been doing my show, Autism Live, for 12 years, once a week, 12 years. So there's a massive wow. library on YouTube, yeah, which is also fun and helpful. And it's been cataloged, so people can go in there and search, like, how do I potty train? And a lot of stuff pops up. Yeah. That's okay. fantastic. Amazing. And That's so, so uh, is this autismlive.com? Is this, is this, yep. this yep. here? Yep. Autism live. Perfect. Oh, and we have one that says ask Dr. Dory. Yep. Ask Doreen. Mm -hmm. uh, so Leslie okay. has another question. I love it. Leslie's engaged today. So we're, we're answering some questions for her, which is amazing. Sean, go ahead. Do you want to read? Yeah. That? So uh, Leslie's asking, do they replace regular school? with ABA or do children go to school then ABA afterwards? She's asking in regard to her grandson. He just started pre-K this year. He did pre-K right when he turned three, then three to four months later, COVID hit. And we don't feel he was ready for kindergarten as he turns six in November. He is in speech and OT for the last four, year, four years once a week. I'm still waiting for the school to do his IEP evaluation. I have asked and his teacher is supposed to email the person who does the IEP stuff. He's also considered uh, nonverbal. Uh, and then it, I think there's more, but it isn't actually up there. And, and I'm curious as to how that worked too, because for Elijah, he was receiving ABA, he was receiving therapy both at home and in school. So yeah, it depends, but question. I don't know how that changes. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. One of the things I would always do is I'd put up kind of the three, four year 
plan for the child? Because I think for me, like if the way that I would introduce the school, for me, it was very important that the children be successful when they enter school, because otherwise it's a complete waste of time. Like that's mm -hmm. how I would perceive it. They need to be able to attend to a teacher. They need to be able to interact with other kids. They need mm -hmm. to have enough communication, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, to be able to defend and protect themselves and express themselves. Otherwise, that last part is so huge right there. Oh, yes. it's huge because if they don't have that, they will get frustrated and get angry and have challenging behaviors. And then the school will give them more trouble. Like it's just not a good cycle. So for me, I try very hard to work with my children first. So if I'm lucky and I get a child when they're, let's say three, I will have no school. I'll have at least two years or maybe three years where I can do a lot of intensive work to prepare the child for school. And then when they start school, I'll definitely have my team in there for part mm -hmm. of the time and I will fade the team out as the school takes over. And what and the, the regular or special ed portion has to do with the child. And you know, special ed has positives, it has negatives. Regular it might be too hard for some kids. So you just have to really look and see what is most appropriate for the child. I'm getting several things from you. One one which is we all need to remember, those of us that are teachers, practitioners, parents, remember that this is a case-by-case -case basis, everything, right? And then it seems to me, would you, and would you not say, I, what I got from what you were saying is that it is important, and I think for children, generally speaking, not just a special ed or general ed, just period, to be in an environment where there are tangible wins that they can get in school. Because for someone who baffled people outside of an academic situation because they thought I was quote unquote smart, but then mm -hmm. I baffled them in an academic situation because I just didn't know my way around anything other than a DNF because I was always bored in class, which is that if you get, if you don't have wins, some kind of reinforcement, if you get the opposite, you get to start, you begin to believe that this is who you are. This is who oh. you're meant to be. Maybe I'm just not the smartest. I'm just, I just don't do good with school. I don't get good grades. And what happens is we're holding on to the experiences that we've had and we're, yep. and then we end up living our life less from imagination and more from what's taken place in the past. That's right. It defines, starts to, those labels start to define you. That's so mm -hmm. well said. So well said, John. That's exactly right. We never want our kids to have a hard time and aversive re like experience in school because let's face it, they're going to have to be there for a while. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Brian. And Dr. Doreen, is this the, these are the kinds of questions that people ask you, generally, mm -hmm. what Leslie is asking. Yeah. Yeah, right. On my show, I mean, I have questions exactly like Leslie's and all sorts of stuff. And sometimes, yeah. because people are live with us as well, sometimes I will ask for more information. They'll give me more detail. And it's a dialogue. And, and sometimes we don't get to all the questions. We always uh, will go to the next show. I mean, it's once a week. And I uh, usually I'll start out with a specific topic as well. So I'm, I like to talk about like, you know, how to teach social communication, how to improve sleeping, how to change diet, how to whatever it might be that people are writing it about. But that's the kind of stuff. And also on the social media, that's exactly what I, when I get questions on something, I'll either directly answer the person or I'll do a video on it. Lately, um, guys, I've been very into like communicating with parents about anxiety and depression. 
not you just a lot. Sure. first for themselves and for like some of our adolescents who are going through that. So COVID, I think, brought that to the surface. And so a lot of my videos on social media are right about tools to help when you are experiencing either anxiety or depression. Yeah, it's I'm glad you said that. Um, and we're just about that. 10 minute mark. I said this so many times before. This is the fastest the show has ever gotten and it never goes slow. But I've come to the realization, you know, the approach that Brian and I take towards special needs because our work, our primary work is in financial services. So we we help people, special needs families build a bridge between the life they have and the one that they want. Prepare for yes. a time when we exist only in memory. But what is really hitting me lately is I think there's a form of anxiety that I'm dealing with in terms of just um, you know, it's one thing that the last 10 years, the last two and a half years, especially, and heck, the last two weeks have taught me is that those periods of time, the last 10 years, two weeks, two and a half years, the next 10, the next two of each of those things are going to go twice as fast as the ones that have passed. And so there's a certain amount of anxiety that we have in terms of just who's going to look out for my child. Yes. Um Yes. And our ability to cope cope with it when we're um, when we're living as well. Um, but we're at that we're at that point. Um, so, Brian, do you want to kind of wrap up before I go into um, uh, the question? Or would you like me to ask that first? Do the, do the question first. Yeah, um, this is the part of the of the show where, you know, based on our desire to grow, improve and make the world a better place and make ourselves better people. Um, we ask the following question, um, you know, our ability to change the world, make it a better place is tied in some way, great or small, um, to our ability or willingness to change ourselves. With that said, Dr. Doreen, if you can, give us one example of a thought or belief that you once felt very strongly, but no longer believed to be true. Yeah, I, you guys, uh, you sent me that and I was like, whoa, this is a very heavy question. I there, you know, I've learned so many things over the course of the past like 40 years or so as, as an adult, and I just continue to learn things. But I would say probably the one that at least I am fully experiencing and aware of now in, in the last few years is this. You know, I grew up uh, somehow, as you said, Sean, in the beginning, when we grow up, when we're children, the world teaches us a particular way, right? And I grew up thinking I must achieve, right? Achievement was very rewarded in my in mm -hmm. my youth. And so I always felt really good, but I was like, as I said to you, you know, like I was very proud. I was at UCLA when I was 16. I got my doctorate when I was 27. I started card. I did, I just had to keep doing, do, 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 and make more and more and this and that. And I would say, honestly, it was, you know, 30 somewhat years of, or 40 years, if you include my education, of just running, right? And going really, really fast achievement. And when I got to stop, which was COVID, for me, it was very interesting because it was also my retirement and COVID. And it was like, whoa, the world stopped. And yeah. I realized that the happiness that we seek isn't about the next thing you achieve. It's really just about the present time. 
And that has been for me a very interesting lesson, which is like, it, which, you know, comes back to what Eckhart Tolle and everybody talks about, which is not just enjoy the present, but we are not human doings. We are human beings, just be. And so for, for me right now, what I am learning in my life is that I don't need to keep achieving. I just need to be. And that is a very hard lesson for me, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that I think it, for people who are young and still achieving, I, it translates into enjoy the journey. Don't worry about like the end. It's all about the journey, the journey. Yeah, of not the destination. It's so much fun. You keep achieving. We all should, but really enjoy it as you are going because it's that that matters. Yeah. Wow. I love that. <clears throat> that's something that's a philosophy we we firmly uh, espouse. We talk about be, do, have, right? It's more about yes. being than it is about doing. And that having. will eventually lead to having, right? So right. that is fascinating. I, and like Sean said, I this this <laughs> hour flew by. Um, yes. I didn't know that we could spend another hour with you. Luckily, there's a resource for people to reach out to you and, and ask you and, and be engaged with you. And thank you so much for your continued support in of this community and the work that you do and i'm you know proud to be a a bruin and not only that but a psych major so i feel like you know we've got we've got a little bit of that that connection as well so thank you so uh, much you guys it's been so lovely being on your show before we go can i just uh, plug my nonprofit, my charity please Absolutely. do please yeah for 15 years ago i founded a charity called autism care today act dash today dot org and you can look it up. And it's it is a it's an awesome charity. It's me and several other parents, Autism Care Today. And what we do is we just give funds to families. And so the reason I'm I, and we have uh, we're very blessed. We have a lot of people donating to us, and we do a fundraiser every year. We're just about to do one here in the LA area um, called All Ghouls Gala. It's a Halloween event. But really, I saw that. Yeah, so the main the reason, and Sean, you're invited. You got to come since you're in the LA area. Thank you. <laughs> but the thing about it is that it's we give a lot of help. So if there are families listening, um, we buy iPads, we buy AUG devices, we give money for fencing, for safety equipment, for copays, uh, lots of different things, and we've given out already past two million. So, uh, you know, if parents need, if families are in need of help, just go on the website and uh, send in your, your grant application. Beautiful. That is fantastic. And it's up on the screen for those that are, are watching us, even after the fact. Right. Act-today.org. That's amazing. Thank so thank you for, for, for doing our show with us today and for your continued support and effort. As, <clears throat> as we wrap up this episode, I always like to, to, remind people that, you know, empathy and love is, is so important and so needed today, almost more than any other time. So if you see somebody's situation and you don't quite understand, better to be curious and ask as opposed to making a judgment, right? Empathy is all about of having some understanding of somebody else's situation. So be more empathetic and look at the world through the lenses of love and the world looks completely different. As we get ready to sign off, Sean, I'll throw it to you to, to close us out and to end today's show. I want to thank Dr. Doreen again for a wonderful time today. And as, as much as I appreciate it and as excited as I was, um, which those 
things were surpassed. I'm also looking forward to the great work that we're going to be able to do in the future because I know there's there's things we're working on that we you know love to do with you uh, as well. Um, and remember, just like you know Brian said, questions are so much more powerful than uh, than statements. Let's be a little more childlike and less childish. I want to make sure that I thank the women in my life without whom I would not be. That is my amazing wife Laura and my mom Jan. And remember that. People need to be loved. They need to be seen. They need to be heard. They need to know that they matter. That is something that we all have. Um, I want to thank everyone for tuning in, whether you're um, catching us live after the fact on WSDX AM radio in the U.S. Virgin Islands, wherever the case might be, wherever you are, we love you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.